You are tuning in to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. After you finish listening to it, why not take a moment to listen to one of the most recent episodes? I'm sure you'll enjoy it. This is Tommy's Outdoors, episode 40. Someone pointed out to me that this podcast is becoming more of a ecology wildlife podcast. Well, ecology and wildlife is outdoors, right? So today, it's going to be not only about ecology and wildlife, but also history. A natural history, that is. As the title suggests, we are going to talk about quaternary megafauna, big animals which are largely extinct today, like mammoths and woolly rhinoceros. But more importantly, we are going to talk about their collapse and what might have caused it, and what role big animals play in the ecosystem. Our guest, Richard Doran Sherlock, is a fountain of knowledge about quaternary megafauna and has worked on research for, for rewilding projects and non-for-profit organizations, etc. I got in touch with Richard on Twitter. Uh, I think sometimes I spend way too much time on Twitter. But then again, it gives an opportunity to meet people like Richard and have these incredibly interesting conversations. What drew my attention was that to my questions, Richard responded by providing links to research papers rather than trying to squeeze the discussion into 280 characters of tweet. I like that a lot. That gives you an in-depth view on the issue and you can delve into the nuance of particular problem. So we quickly agreed to record an episode of the podcast to discuss Pleistocene megaf- megafauna extinction. One last word. Uh, the recording was done through the internet due to geographical separation issues. So it might f- sound funny at times, uh, especially I sound funny, as having a conversation over an online tool and monitoring progress of the recording is sometimes not easy. But enough excuses. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Doran Sherlock and Pleistocene Megafauna. Richard, welcome to the show. Yeah, Tommy, thank you so much for having me on. It's it's uh, great to get to talk to you. Yes, it's 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 a uh, you know I'm really pumped for this for this episode because um, we're we're going to discuss the subject that that is uh, very very interesting to me, uh, which is megafauna and and uh, so we you know it's an outdoors podcast, but we're gonna. Mm-hmm rewind time a little bit at least yeah. in, the, in, the, in the first part of the of that of that podcast um so you uh you're you you uh you have a degree in natural science and and that's that's something that was your your uh interest in in quaternary science can you can you maybe uh, just for a starter explain a little bit like what is that quaternary science and and what it all encompasses. Absolutely, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Well, the quaternary is a period that we refer to in um, a geological capacity as being the last 2.5 million years of Earth's history. So most people have a fairly clear idea of um, the longer arc of thing. By by way, I mean the dinosaurs, right? Every, Every child on the planet grows up knowing uh what a tyrannosaurus rex is um and we all know about the uh how the dinosaurs finished up and then there was this uh really interesting period in earth's history where um animal forms were quite bizarre 
So immediately after the dinosaurs went extinct, some of the largest carnivores on the planet were flightless birds, which looked an awful lot like our modern conception of theropods as being feathered things walking around. There was a, a giant snake in Colombia who weighed over a ton, Titanoboa. There was all sorts of bizarre, meandering, weird uh, forms as mammals started to take over the niches that the dinosaurs had occupied. And then, <coughs> excuse me, about 2.5 million years ago, something shifted. Now, as to what it was, there's a couple of debates, but I think the most likely one is that the Isthmus of Panama closed. And what that meant was that circulation of heat as it's distributed throughout the Earth uh, started to follow a regular pattern, which was which is regulated by variations in Earth's orbit around the sun. And a periodic cycling started happening of accretion of ice in what we know as the Ice Age, uh, interspersed with these interglacial periods, generally of about uh, 10 to 15,000 years in length, where temperatures were quite warm and uh, uh, a lot of the Earth was inhabitable. So really the Ice Age, we're still technically in the Ice Age because we have ice at the poles, and we are currently in, um, in the end of one of these warmer periods in the long repeating pattern of of uh, glaciation. So that's sorry, it's it's I have to, I have to jump in because it's it's not you know I I just cannot not ask you about yeah. in that scale right there's a there's a lot of talk right now about the climate change and warming and all that yeah. but if 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 we look at those scales of time. Mm -hmm. um it's it's it looks like it's like you know it's not that warm and it's not you know it's definitely not that cold and you say like you know technically we are still in a in a in a in a, in a tail end of the ice age right yeah. so so the warming of the climate would be something expected regardless of everything else um well the the issue is not so much the warming as the rate uh, because what we have is a very clear geological chronicity for, or chronology rather, for periodic changes. Certainly in the last warm period in the glacial cycle, which is the, the Eemian, uh, there were temperature fluctuations of up to 11 degrees uh, annual average in this part of the world. Massive, massive, massive changes over very, uh, well, the rate of warming at the moment is something that would not have geological precedence for in the quaternary. Right. Right. So it's 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 not so much that there were changes. And a lot of people do say, yes, if we're if we're talking about climate change, we have to acknowledge the fact that that in the last two point five million years we know that the the uh, we know we have these cycles. Um, the question is as we, our current point in the warm cycle, and this was the theory back in the 60s and 70s, was if you're looking at a 10,000-year window of quite temperate conditions, surely why isn't that starting to round down? So it's not so much about the fact that there have been changes. It's the fact that we have built a precarious situation, which we call our civilization, hmm. on the assumption that we're going to be living in a fairly stable physical environment. Yes. Um, and the current rates are not something that we have precedence for in the quaternary. Right. 
right. Okay. Thank, thanks for that clarification. I thought it's 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 a it's a, it's interesting because I always find a like when you're when you start talking about the time frames in millions of years or mm -hmm. or hundreds of thousands of years, that gives like a tremendous perspective. And so like whoa, you know, and 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 actually, I'm finding a, personally, I'm finding a lot of comfort in in those in those you know looking at the history of the of the of the planet as like well you know the planet will be all right you know and and i even uh, i think it was like a stand up comedy piece where uh, the 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 guy was saying you know like uh, about the plastic and something like will save save the planet and he was going like oh no planet will be okay like a planet was through worse <laughs> you know the the comets hit and the asteroids hit and the planet will be okay well, you know it's like save yourself don't worry about the planet. <laughs> I, I think that was uh, that was george carlin probably <laughs> probably probably yes 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 you're right you're right yeah. Well, the the in terms of that, then, and this this is sort of moving towards the next uh, thing we want want to discuss was if you're talking about you know saving ourselves and yeah the planet will be all right. Uh, what do we mean by saying that the planet will be all right? Because mm -hmm. I think, and this is this is a, an area of of perpetual fascination for myself, mm -hmm. and and no doubt yourself and many other people. And that is the fact that ecosystems have a, quite an interesting capacity for self-regulation. Mm -hmm. And uh, this this is something that a lot of um, a lot of uh, a lot of people don't aren't necessarily comfortable discussing because we like a lot of the time we tend to approach nature in a very managerial way. But mm -hmm. Ecosystems have an absolutely remarkable ability to adapt, evolve, and to regulate the physical environment around them in order to make it more habitable for further life. And this is the this is one element of the Gaian theory that um, James Lovelock purported. And it, it's and when we're talking about yeah, the planet will be okay. The question is okay, but are the elements in place for those ecosystems to start uh, self-regulating, to start stabilizing their physical environment, so that life will be okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the one of the elements of this is the fact that in the in the last two point five million years, and in fact, really, in uh, since the you know in the post-dinosaur period there have always been megafauna and yeah. mammalian megafauna are there's a couple of different um definitions for megafauna uh depending on whether you're using metric or imperial units some people say any animal over 45 kilos some people it's 100 some people it's a ton but megafauna is we'll just use it as a term to refer to the larger uh faunal components of an ecosystem mm -hmm. And they were every continent on the planet, with the, the exception of Antarctica, had a megafauna. Mm -hmm. So in Ireland, we had the remains of uh, certainly mammoth. Uh, Europe had at least uh, at least three or four different elephants. If we want to define, if we want to use elephant as a term to include mm -hmm. uh, both forest elephants and African elephants and mammoths. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, really phenomenally. Mastodons, <laughs> right? Is is mastodons also in in that 
category. Yes, uh, mastodons were were effectively the equivalent of the North American forest elephant. Mm. Um, uh, huge, huge, huge beasts. Uh, remarkable things such as giant ground sloths in South America, mm. a sloth that weighed as much as a bull elephant does now. Um, really, really phenomenal, weird, wonderful creatures. And um, they seem to have died out in a very interesting pattern towards the end of the Pleistocene, which is the, the, the term for the last kind of glacial maxima, or beg your pardon, the, the term for the quaternary period up until um, the current warm period known as the Holocene. Mm-hmm. So how can an ecosystem start to adapt and be okay, irrespective of whatever changes are happening climatically? without the presence of these megafauna. Hmm. Well, I think that, that it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good question. Um, you know, I, 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 you probably know better what is the term uh, when the, and that happened because we, we, the planet had a number of these extinction events. And after this extinction event, what's happening is, a, and I don't remember the term, but it's like an acceleration in, in the, uh, Different in, in in appearing different new types of uh, animals and different species of animals because it, it's like like those ecological niche are are empty and yeah. so there is a, there I, I don't remember a term there's like acceleration in, in, in proliferation and and you know evolution of different forms that were were just simply not able um, to live before. You know, in a, in a, in the previous state of things, where you have all the other 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 animals, except that this is the, the the time frames are so huge. It's it's like nothing. I think it's it's very hard to wrap wrap our heads around that. Like you know, something's happening in a half a million year uh, period of time. Hmm. Well, I mean, half we're, we're very uh, we're both fortunate and disadvantaged that we. Um, we tend to frame time in uh, in terms of human experience because mm-hmm. <laughs> we get in and out like a shot. We're we're barely on the planet. <laughs> yes, exactly, um, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's so talking about these things is is wonderfully interesting, but very very difficult to relate in terms of direct human experience. But certainly, nature has a has a a remarkable ca- capacity to. Uh, produce complexity to produce interactions which are really phenomenally interesting um, the interesting thing about the megafauna is that they act not just as in the way we might have observed them previously which is just interesting elements of an ecosystem but the reality is that their interaction uh, produces regulatory effects on an ecosystem whether that's uh, in this ever-changing dance between grassland and forest mm-hmm. um, as one flips to the other over time. And again, a forest, we tend to think of it as a noun, but a forest really we should consider as a verb. It's not a, it's not a fixed thing, it's a process. Yes. And, and, uh, much like, and grasslands, again, we shouldn't consider them a noun. They're, they're, a, they're a verb, a process. And in these dances between these two processes, Megafauna played a really key role in producing um, 
on maximizing biological diversity in a very, very dense forest where you have, say, well, a prime example would be somewhere like North America, which many of the forests in, say, the boreal region, uh, the Canadian forests, are surprisingly empty of animals. And you will find some of the big ones there in in, uh, uh, grizzlies, black bears, moose, because there's enough space um, that they can more or less not have human contact for a while. But that particular forest lacks mastodons, which had the capacity to eat conifers, break down dense, denser forest structures so that more light hits the forest floor. You get, uh-huh. more, uh, you get more diverse flora then growing, more fruit, uh, which facilitates more birds, which bring in more diverse tree seeds. You get, you get a, a, a very quick kind of catalyst by having an animal like that in, a, in effectively a natural monoculture. So these sort of effects, I mean, everyone talks about the wolves in Yellowstone, and it's a beautiful example of one one species which has this really remarkable cascade effect on the local environment. But the fact is that megafauna did this everywhere. Yes. And listen, is that the, is that the, the fact of the megafauna and the like a large body size, was that related in any way to glaciation because there is this process that the animals uh with the temperatures going down the body mass and body size of the animals goes up because it's it's easier for them to maintain heat so uh, was to, that related to the to the glaciation not necessarily um because don't forget that uh mammoths which we associate and we we associate the woolly mammoth, but there are a couple of different subspecies of mammoths, including like the, the Colombian mammoth, which was fairly hairless. Um, they evolved in Africa um, and marched out. So the the body size, a lot of our assumptions about the body size distribution of animals on the planet are based on modern uh, modern biological assemblages rather than the necessary quaternary history. So there could be a lot of variety. Certainly it makes sense. The, the larger your volume is, the, the smaller your surface area is. So the less heat you, you lose through direct contact with cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, on the mammoth step, which would have been the kind of grasslands and, and uh, on the border of the glacial areas throughout the Northern hemisphere, mm-hmm. mammoths, you also had animals like Elasmotherium, uh, very, very large deer like Megaloceros, some really, really remarkable animals. And yes, yeah. they were very big, but the, the key thing is there were big guys everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And the big predators as well, right? The whole whole oh, host yeah. of, of, of uh, cyber-toothed tigers and uh, yes. was like a North American lion and it was a North American cheetah. And yes. uh, like 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 the and uh, you know my favorite one, short faced bear, which was just, <laughs> just, just, just yeah yeah just yeah. the monster of the of the animal. Yeah, um, and in Europe we had a, a very specific saber toothed animal, well scimitar toothed cat to be to be specific, called a homotherium, mm. which had these absolutely ferocious daggers for canines and could weigh four hundred and forty kilos. Wow. Big, big, big beast. 
Right, and uh, and so all these the these animals uh, were were roaming the world. Um, in, in 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 what what how long ago? Can you can you refresh? Uh, like how Certainly. Long well, the, talking about the assemblage we're talking about at the moment would have been uh, would have been the dominant assemblage from two point five million years on to about roughly. Uh, Ten to twelve thousand years. Though so the extinction dates for these animals have a mm. uh, a differing pattern, and for many years, the reason for this extension has been debated. Mm -hmm. So this is this is this is like a over two million years, like two and a half million years. For two and a half million years, we have this. Uh, you you use the term assemblage, right? So yes. so 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 like a. All those animals on the landscape. So this is this is uh, the name is assemblage. So that was for like two and a half million years. That's yeah. is like a massive amount of time. It's like not nothing. Like again, nothing we can wrap our heads around because you know we're we're operating with a tens of hundreds or or hundreds of thousands years. If we if we talk about human history, and here it is like this is two million years ago, and yeah. this is all that happened after dinosaurs which were like you know <laughs> even further further so 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 that's uh that's fantastic can we quickly uh touch on the animals like from this those megafauna animals that survive to to this day because some of them survive is that right yeah i mean the, the, absolutely i mean for for starters oceanic megafauna um so oh. let's 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 point out the biggest the biggest animal that's ever lived is still alive, uh, the blue whale. Um, wow. Though it's obviously in, in diminished numbers. The the African the, the chief megafauna that still exists are the African and Indian megafauna. Now these are diminished. At one stage there would have been about eight uh, elephants, if you were if you include animals like Dinotherium in Africa. At the moment there's there's really two kind of elephants. There's the the plains elephant and the forest elephant, the actual categorization of the forest elephant, as far as I recall, uh, and this is a conversation from a friend, um, the the forest elephant actually, one of the reasons they don't necessarily highlight the distinction in terms of um, its genetic separation from the plains elephant is that Hey, all the, the conservation legislation would have to be updated internationally because otherwise it would be open season <laughs> on those. <laughs> okay. So so is that so you're you're talking about Africa right now? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so in total there's a there's a three species of elephant, right? Because there's a one in India as well. That's right, yes. Okay, so in total we have three species of elephant: plains elephant, forest elephant. And how do you how do what's the difference between plains elephant and and uh, forest elephant? Um, I would I don't know enough to be able to answer that one confidently. To be honest, I uh, certainly okay. the, the I could point you in the direction of some people who who really really know mm -hmm. their megafauna in in uh, sure. absolutely wonderful detail, but that I would sure. not. Sure, but that's a very interesting uh, information. I, I, I didn't. I di actually, I didn't realize that. Okay, so we have. So, like you said, we we have African mega. So, and, and you made an excellent point. Like oceanic megafauna, the the whales, 
do you remember what was the time frame when the whales uh, evolved in the current state? And you know, if for some reason, it's like there's a, one of these facts that that kind of I have it in my head, like the names of the fossil yeah. uh, fossil uh, uh, whales, like a Pachycetus natans and Amblyatetus, yeah. where where they were just starting and kind of just getting into the well, water but i can't remember what was the time frame well whales took uh, a couple of um a couple of evolutionary trial periods before they <laughs> they found the model that worked certainly the mm-hmm. the ambulocetus which was mm-hmm. uh around in the eocene so very very hot uh time in earth's history and there are fossils of this creature in in i think the Messel pits in germany um, so that was that was a mammal who started doing what crocodiles do now, which is hunting through stealth, going underwater, staying still, and then uh, snapping at something that would pass by. Um, and that became a genetic predecessor for whales. Whale, whale evolution is is phenomenally interesting, and I am embarrassingly ignorant of the details, but I do remember the the role the ambulocetus has played as being one of the starts for for quadruped mammals to get back into the water yeah yeah and this is this is again something that is happening over and over in, in evolution that certain ecological niches are are certain animals are taking the same steps like you like you mentioned now like a crocodile and then uh, mammals and it doesn't doesn't mean that uh, you know something not gonna happen again. So, so going back, what whatever what animals that are survived to to today, mm-hmm. uh, today's time, all the, the whales and African megafauna, but also uh, a moose is a is a, a megafauna. I think I oh, think yes. like a buffalo or bison right, as well. Oh yeah, um, certainly uh, the European bison, the wizard, um, mm-hmm. uh, Zuber. I can't remember how to pronounce it in Polish. Yeah, exactly, Zuber. Yeah. Um, uh, if you if you uh, use the category of looking at, uh, at at animals over 100 kilos as the definition of megafauna, then we still technically have megafauna in Europe through the through the bison, through the brown bear, um, mm-hmm. and moose. Yes, and moose moose are quite interesting because the Alsace genus actually evolved in uh, what's currently France. So they came oh. into North America around the same time humans did. Hmm. That's fascinating. And and listen, there's there's also when we when you were talking about these times, there is uh, something I want to bring up uh, for the interest of our listeners: the pronghorn antelope in uh, in American plains. Hmm. That is also kind of like a remind remaining species that that. Is kind of like a leftover, and uh, the fact that is often brought up is like that. That's it's, it's incredibly fast, and incredible. Like yeah, a, like yeah. a, we don't have any animals like that because they're living those groups, and if they're in a danger, the the most uh, strong and dominant animals are actually in the middle of the group, hmm. so the predators can pick out the the weaker one from the outside <laughs> of the group, and they're so fast. There is nothing that is that could chase them, and this is like because there was a cheetah, yeah, there was yeah. a uh, American lion, and they evolved to live for like two million years or however long, 
with those animals. And now they're, they, they, the megafauna is gone. We don't have uh, American lion. We don't have cheetah, but we still have those pronghorn antelopes who are like super fast. And just, just yeah, like exactly. And, and that's, we see these kind of shadows in our ecosystems. And certainly in Ireland, if you look at um, a lot of our, our woodland species, um, mm-hmm. certain things like hazel, they coppice extremely well because they're used to very, very large animals, or sorry, they are genetically uh, enriched with the information that their forebearers would have been browsed by very, very, and smashed up by large megafauna, large herbivores. So we see these little traces, these little shadows when we're out and about. For me, it's a very enriching experience, but um, also yeah. sometimes you, it, it feels a little bit like uh, walking through a beautiful cemetery. It's, it's, it's yeah. beautiful, <laughs> but you get a sense of what's what's lost. Mm, yes. Okay. Um, I think we covered everything that, that stay, all the animals that stayed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so now really this is something that uh, kind of... Uh, why this podcast happened because we kind of engaged in, on on Twitter yeah. uh, when we were talking about or actually you were talking and then I commented out and then it kind of like snowballed from from there about like okay so what happened yeah. right we have for two and a half million years fairly stable ecosystem right is it's fair to say it's it's uh, I think it's fair to say that we have a very rich assemblage which can move in fluctuation with the glacial the glacial succession right yeah. right but in 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 general with the glacier with the glaciers and that they all all these animals it assembled that it's in a kind of working balance let's say yeah, exactly. uh, for two and a half million years everything is fine and then something is happening yeah and um before we start kind of discussing of what is happening and what could have happened, one thing I would like to establish at the beginning is like all the like I, I have a feeling like often when we have those discussions, especially when something is happening in the past, um, quite often for the purpose of communication, it's simplified and it's like, oh, this is happening like but this is really very speculative. This is the, 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 and really the question, the, my question is like, would you agree with that? that This is very speculative because the fossil record is pretty scarce. There's not much of that compared to how many animals were there. And, and, uh, and obviously there is a research and there's a certain, uh, you know, research and data and so on, but really it is speculative. It's like, we think this is what happened, but this is not like a, deal done like for sure that's what happened right is 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 that correct is that is that the well, right way to put it i would say that what we're about to get into is a is a topic which has been de- debated heavily and hard for about 50 something years so uh the fact that that debate has gone on for as long as it has yeah there there's a lot of complexity involved because what we're talking about is how local events relate to global events and um, it's important to be respectful in engaging with this because, yeah, it's it's incredibly complicated. What we have to deal with is um, the fact that fossil evidence is never going to be um, 
case closed. We're no client. And let's let's just pray for, preface this with kind of exploring the history of the debate a little bit, and then we can kind of get onto it. Um, the chief Perfect. discussion around the megafauna has been well, what killed them? And the two dominant theories are what's known as overkill. So humans uh, turned everything into burgers or uh, climate change. And a rapidly changing climate altered ecological conditions such that the large guys couldn't survive anymore. And um, there's various forms of intermediate theories in terms of it being a soupy mix of the both. And the discussion we were having was about this as uh, now, if you're talking, let's let's deal with the weaknesses of both theories first, and then we'll we'll maybe discuss their relative strengths. Yeah, okay, that's 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 perfect. But but in in in, in, in you know, I don't want to put the words in your mouth, but in principle, you you agree that this is not a done deal. We don't we don't really know. I I'm right? willing to. Uh, Put my weight behind one of those arguments. Of course, <laughs> of course. I think, I think, I think that that has not. You, you know, I give you, I give it maybe different example just to ex explain. Um, you see, or sometimes we see in the in the news that it's like, oh, there is a new planet discovered, like an Earth two, mm -hmm. and it's very likely it has a water and so on. And we have see that really nice picture and computer graphic of you know like. Earth-like planet with, with uh, you know, uh, green water and clouds and so on and so on. And, and then when you once you start digging into that, it's like, well, there's a this percentage probability because there's some measurement and some echo and some things measured. It's like, well, there's a probability it looks like Earth and has a water, but there's also probability that it's a gas giant yeah. right and then you make a thing like well okay so where we go from the that we measured something that might be a planet with the water or might be a gas giant like a jupiter we go fast forward into the press release like second earth discovered yeah. and these nice pictures right so that kind of gives me that perspective okay. like when when I, when i'm reading anything in like a popular even popular science popular science articles or or newspapers really you need to go into the the re the research and in fairness to you you sent me a research paper which was absolutely painful for me to read because it's it's like yeah, but that's the only way you actually reading and it's like oh so that's what happened this is the data and this is what's the conclusion is like not not like a very simplified yeah. version of you know like a one pager this is what happened thank you very much it's like okay <laughs> yeah well i can tell you i i was fascinated by the conclusions of the paper and i really really got a lot out of it but it was also painful for me to read because that's how science works <laughs> yeah 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 okay so so once we establish that uh, this is we, we, we talking about stuff that is you know in some sense spe speculative uh please you you're you had a great idea just to go and and start with the weaknesses of of of, of both both theories okay well let's start with the weakness of the uh overkill theory mm -hmm. So the weakness of the overkill theory has to do with direct evidence in terms of if you had evidence of every single bone you found had a spear tip in it, mm -hmm. that would be great. But 
the resolution of that kind of archaeological data is really, really poor. The, the number of instances you would have to have had of a mammoth being speared mm-hmm. to find a spear tip in a rib mm-hmm. uh, is it's really, really impossible to calculate the, the actual ratio, the number of events that happened compared to the number of events that are, are preserved in the fossil record. So if you set the standard of being, we need to have direct evidence in every single location of almost all of the big guys, the big megafauna dying by direct human intervention. That's a standard of evidence, which is going to be almost impossible to prove. Yeah. Especially that probably so, we don't have all the species of megafauna in, in the record anyway. So there are probably animals exactly. that we don't even know that existed, yet alone yeah. to have a, that specific, like you say, spear tip in a skull or in a rib. Exactly. I mean, the, the, the mental exercise, which, which is how many Tyrannosaurus rex needed to walk on the planet for us to have the number of skeletons. I think we only have eight complete uh fossils now or something something if not in single digits very close to it okay. uh so fossil evidence is not going to be our friend for that theory so then let's discuss the weakness of the climate hypothesis okay so that's the only weakness so, in of of the overkill theory that the fossil uh, evidence is not supporting it in, in short uh, the, fo- the fossil evidence is not frequent enough mm. to support an argument which depends on entire fossil evidence. Yeah. For the climate change hypothesis, the issue is the fact that over the 2.5 million years, as we discussed on the onset, mm. it was not a question of the climate being fixed. Variations in the Earth's uh, orbit around the sun um, resulted in this sort of periodicity of approximately 100,000 years of deep freeze with extensive glaciation and then a 10,000 year interglacial warm period. So there was around, there was over 20 of those in 2.5 million years. Mm. And in fact, in the last one, in the Eemian, as I mentioned earlier, there was a temperature variation of up to 11 degrees in, uh, in annual temperature in the earth which is really huge that's absolutely remarkable range so if you say that climate change killed the megafauna Mm -hmm. you have to be able to explain why they survived for 20 something previous cold and warm cycles yeah and that uh, so the logic behind that becomes quite um Questionable, and if you're to take, if you're to, if you were to go deeper into the climate change argument, there's a couple of other factors that we need to look at. And one is, prior to the Quaternary, we have a relatively good historical record for climate change in the preceding uh, 60 million years or so. Mm-hmm. And what we find is that when we have clear, unambiguous geological evidence of climate change, it's not the large animals that go; it's the small local ones. Mm. Because a large animal, something the size of an elephant or many times its size, can walk away. Yes. Whereas small local animals with with uh, extreme specificity to say that the the mineral content of a specific river or the uh, or 
the temperature of a specific mountain range. Yeah. They they go because they can't migrate. Yeah, yeah. So that's point. that's some, some, So that's one of the that's one of the logical points which sways the argument in favor of humans in that we why there if there has been a mass extinction event of large animals but the smaller animals have survived that's contrary to almost everything we know about earth's biological history Hmm. Um, the second thing is to do with the distribution in terms of when you have a climate change event and a scale of something that's affecting a continent or a hemisphere or the globe uh, the areas of land which are most likely to be affected are islands uh, for much the same reason that if you have island populations uh, there's a very significant change in the climatic conditions which result in either um, a collapse or drastic change of the of the flora collapse of the sub- of the herbivores collapse of the carnivores uh, yeah islands are very vulnerable for the exact same reason. And what we have with the end of the Pleistocene is, again, the opposite, that the islands become the strongholds, the last holdouts of the megafauna. The very last mammoth died well after the pyramids had been built in Wrangell Island uh, on the northeast of Siberian coast. Yeah. How long ago was it? Only about 3,000 3, years. 3,000 years ago. So, so mammoths were, were still... Um, present three thousand years ago. Yes. Right. Right. So, so yeah. that that doesn't. Well, I'm I'm just wondering what does it mean? Like it doesn't support. Well, neither theory really, because clearly, regardless what 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 it was, uh, because because the period of that of that uh great dying or that extinction event was was uh twelve thousand years ago, right? So clearly those. Those um, mammoths, whatever was was whether it was overkill or climate change, they sur- survived that and, and well into. They survived in the places that were hardest for humans to get to, and that's that's the 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 megafauna say in the European mainland died out before the the island megafauna in the Mediterranean, because well, rather than walking, we had to um, mm-hmm. develop ships. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the, the 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 islands become refugia of megafauna, which would be more susceptible to climactic effects, mm-hmm. um, purely because it's it's more difficult for us to get there. Right. Certainly, like the moa in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, that which was the giant giant bird that only died out. I think it was seven hundred years ago yeah. when the the Polynesian people first landed. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a good point about the uh, islands. Um, so so, given all that, you're you're you think that the overkill uh, theory is the one that is more um, probable. I think yes, that's exactly it. That we have to apply Occam's razor, and if you if you decide that, or if you make the decision that. Uh, you think that climate change is is the reason for uh, the collapse of the megafauna. You have to explain why megafauna have existed in some capacity in almost the entirety of Earth's history, why a, an assemblage of animals which have shown the capacity to adapt to the, the various climatic cycles of the Ice Age 
after 20 or something such cycles suddenly stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, why they survived in small isolated pockets in areas where humans had great difficulty getting to. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you, the, the logical picture that we have of human induced overkill is much more consistent with these reasons. Yeah, but is it not the case that, for example, we we there was no humans on North American continent during the time where, for example, short-faced bear was there? Because there is a theory that short-faced bear were one of the species that prevented human humans to entering through, I think, the the, the Bering Passage into North American continent, and only once. The megafauna was gone, and once the short fairies bay were gone, then the, the 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 human hunters were able to kind of go get deeper into North North American uh, continent. Well, I'd certainly say that if humans had dealt with um, the homotherium, the the carnivore I'd mentioned earlier on. Uh, they would have been able to deal with the short faced bear, mm-hmm. insofar as with distance weapons. Uh, humans have an unprecedented evolutionary advantage. Certainly the short first bear is a likely reason why the brown bear, which evolved in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, didn't really get established in continental Europe, mm. or beg your pardon, continental North America. Right. But there are certainly, there are certainly signs that humans had not had started to make inroads via the, the western coast uh, before the, the Clovis people of 13,000 years yes. ago. Yeah, yeah. And do you think that, that, like, given the sheer number of of, of mammoths, for example, um, it's it's kind of unlikely that the human hunters with, you know, atilatals and, like, yeah, these are, like, a long-range weapon, but they're not terribly, uh, you know, not terribly uh, efficient, let's say, Um what would have to happen? I mean, like there was a number, like like much more uh, mammoths and all these animals than humans at the time, right? So how how yeah. how how could they, you know, just go and kill all of them? Okay, well the question is, do you need to kill all of them to kill all of them? Mm-hmm. Um, how many do you need to kill for a species to not have a viable breeding population? Well, clearly we had that breeding population like three thousand years ago, where where the last mammoth was was killed. Oh yeah, but it was a very very small isolated population. Okay. Uh, it, there were only there were only a few dozen remaining on that island. It wasn't an abundant or um, genetically robust population. Yes. They were the last stragglers. Yeah, but my point is, even with that a small number. That small number of animals were, were still establishing kind of population that was able to survive. Well, yeah, actually, in the in uh, specifically the Wrangell Island case, mm-hmm. the the population was so small from inbreeding; they were mm-hmm. very very disease ridden. There was a shortage of water. The animals died out of their own accord, um, yeah. of natural causes. If you were to. Okay. Divorced from the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that wasn't really a good example, or because they were exactly. So what we have to what we have to look at is the fact that 
the megafauna were likely to be like African elephants insofar as diverse, complicated, sociable animals. Mm-hmm. Where if you start breaking up the familial structure, isolating or hunting the fertile males, uh, it does not take long for there to be a cascade effect mm-hmm. rather than every single animal being um, uh, directly dying by ver- by mm-hmm. human spear. Yeah. And you and you think that this is this is perfectly possible that with all that diversity of animals, all those species that we we enumerated mm-hmm. at the beginning, and, and in the huge numbers, because obviously uh, you know wildlife and wild animals was you know in reigning in the planet at the time, where there wasn't were in cities or countries, it was like all all wild. With all that, you know, these human hunters were able just to kill all of them. Well, again, not, not kill all of them, but but yeah. uh, have a sufficient impact on the population of all these species, right? Because let's say, for example, mammoth, right? Let's assume the mammoth has a very, um, and I don't know, I'm just making it up, by the way. But but let's let's just assume that mammoth has a very sophisticated and important um, social structure of the herd, and that can be easily damaged by removing from that environment a number of the animals not necessarily all of them or half of them sufficiently yes, yeah. right but then the same thing happens to all the the predators the the cats the the bears the sloths uh, mm-hmm. uh, m- m- mammoths and uh, rhinoceros and all, all these spe- all these species all of them it's, it seems like wow like what the, the, this, there was not enough humans like at the, at the time well, the, it's it's an extremely emotive topic because it gets into the existential questions of who we really are. Um, oh, yeah, the, the the fact is that the the enormity of the collapse is something that we have hard, we have a lot of trouble grasping the the sheer numbers involved. And with regards to uh, the carnivores, say you had. Say you started to kick out the the legs from under the table of one of the main megafauna species of an area. Mm-hmm. Um, you there, very soon after that you leave a lot of the scavengers go because scavengers, depending on large carcasses, mm-hmm. well, some of the some of the carnivores from the historical record were no doubt um, scavengers as well. Yeah. The the uh, the megafauna specialist carnivores. Certainly, it's not. It's, this is not a view shared by many, but it would be my view that um, mm-hmm. scimitar and saber-toothed carnivores were specialist uh, megafauna hunters. Their food source goes because smaller food gets caught by smaller, quicker predators. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start losing a lot of the regulatory functions of the ecosystem very, very, colla- very quickly in a collapsing mm-hmm. cascade mechanism rather than every single thing being hunted by human spear. And this is part of my problem with the overkill hypothesis is actually the name rather than anything else, Mm -hmm. because the implication being that we, um, yeah, the implication being that we hunted every single individual rather than kicking out enough of these um, ecosystem drivers, as it were. Got it. So so essentially what you're saying, and that's interesting because, 
um, like like to me, it is a it's a it's a new approach to to the to the to the issue or to the problem. Is like it's not so much like you said, like people just wiped out everything, but it so it happened that we almost like a pull out like this this one piece from all that jenga and that all, everything else exactly. co- collapsed rather than kill everything hmm so, but, so so but i was i was wondering like two two and a half million years ago this was fairly stable and robust uh ecosystem and and ecology like and and now it's it, it was it was susceptible to such a collapse by removing like a one piece but then this brings on this brings on to uh the most the most interesting thing though Mm -hmm. as far as i'm concerned because the 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 debate we've been having is certainly something that's been happening in the literature for decades right yeah but if we accept the fact that removing one or two pieces can start a cascade which results in an overall uh diminished equilibrium what would be the implications of putting one or two pieces back? And if we if we uh, if we accept the fact that um, megafauna played profoundly dynamic roles in shaping complex, beautiful, and self-sustaining ecosystems, mm-hmm. bringing back me- missing megafauna becomes perhaps the most important thing we can do for our environment. Wow, that 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 sounds fantastic, but um, I don't see how. <laughs> I, I don't see how there there was there was a there was a uh, I I read about um some people who are s- suggesting or or advocating for bringing back uh, uh elephants to North America to mm-hmm. replace uh, mastodons and and it it, yes. it has it has a name uh that 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 uh, theory or that uh suggestion the, to do that the concept of rewilding is the, yeah, rewilding. It, it's like like exactly. a I, there's a rewilding there's one other word that goes with this which suggests like you know kind of bringing back that uh, missing uh, ecosystem and kind of uh, yeah. reproducing the the assemblage of the of the megafauna that was yeah I, rewilding is certainly the term that I, that I use mm-hmm. um when I talk, when I teach, and when I communicate with people, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, there, the the concept is how can we bring back the individual elements to the ecosystem, which allow the ecosystem to restore. So, as George Carlin joked, nature would be okay, yeah. or Earth would be okay. Um, so, it makes sense. And North America had three elephants. Yeah. It, uh, it had the the Colombian mammoth, the the woolly mammoth, and the um, and the mastodon. And interestingly, actually, specific to those three species is a very interesting argument against climate change because mm-hmm. each three each of these three species, well, certainly the uh, the Colombian and the woolly mammoth could interbreed and could produce hybrids, okay. but they they took on di- different ecosystems. The woolly mammoth would be in the cold grasslands. The, the mammoth steppe of the north, the mastodon would be in the forests, mm-hmm. and the Colombian mammoth would be more of a plains creature. So if the climate changes, you would argue that one of those three ecosystems is going to benefit. If it's yeah. warmer, you'd expect maybe more forest, maybe more 
uh, more grasslands. If it gets colder, you'd expect more mammoth steppe. But each of those three died out around the same time. So how could the climate change in such a way that all three of those systems, not one of those systems was benefited? Yeah. So the, the but that's, that's, again, that's a little bit of an aside. Mm-hmm. The, the argument for bringing back missing creatures and for looking at how ecosystems function with these beautifully dynamic interacting components is one I spend a lot of time mm-hmm. talking to people about. And there's no real, it's still very much experimental because we think of uh, conservation a lot of the time in terms of management, that nature is something to be managed rather than to give it the elements and um, let it do its thing. So certainly the bringing back elephants to North America in as a proxy for the, the elephants it's lost makes a lot of sense. Certainly in Ireland, I would, I'm really hoping that before I go to the grave, I see a wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in Europe, it makes sense to start bringing back some of the, some of what's missing. Though, quite frankly, on the continent, nature's doing a pretty fine job of it itself. There are about fifteen thousand wolves in Europe at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, Listen, and that's very that's a very interesting uh, uh, topic on the on the on the rewilding, and I definitely want to want to spend some time uh, talking about the rewilding because there's a lot of things that I, that I uh, would like to ask you. But just for the completeness sake, um, yes. on these theories, have you heard about the theory that, uh, which is a really kind of like a flavor of the climate change theory, uh, that what caused the the extinction of the megafauna was uh, uh, asteroidal or, com- or 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 comet impact that caused rapid warming, and then. Uh, younger dry, dry as boundary when the temperatures dip down again, and yeah. that the 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 collapse and the and the extinction was happen was because of a, such a rapid catastrophic event rather than you know one of the twenty of uh, changes of uh, of the uh, of the climate that that we know that the whole ecosystem survived. Have you heard about that theory? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, certainly, in terms of let's let's again just contextualize the younger dry ass period after the last glacial maxima and we have pretty good records from palynology ice core and ocean sediment core that as the temperatures warmed there were a couple of periods where suddenly things dipped and got quite cold for a brief intense period again mm-hmm. so that's the that's the older and younger dry ass uh, periods respectively named after an alpine an arctic plant which suddenly start, shows up in a lot of pollen records. Mm-hmm. Now, as for the as for that theory, okay, you have to again contextualize the fact that there were some pretty extreme uh, swings in temperature in the quaternary period already. For the younger dryas, and this has been um, a lot of people have pointed to this as a potential for why climate might have taken out some of the, these megafauna mm-hmm. the the process of warming and cooling on the planet is a non-linear process mm-hmm. things don't go up directly in a neat straight line because the the atmosphere of the planet the oceans of the planet as the main heat conveyor are non-linear systems 
And this is the basis of Edward Lorenz's work when he developed chaos theory in the 60s. The, the butterfly effect, small changes, yeah. slight differences on the onset can have rapidly different uh, outcomes when you run models. So with the younger dryas, there's this cooling period and people think, okay, why is that? Maybe an asteroid? Certainly, if you're expecting something powerful enough to, by way of an asteroid impact, to have a similar effect to the dinosaurs, you would expect a more extensive sediment uh, deposit of, so wherever the crash site was, you would expect there to be a lot of silica deposited in sedimentary layers as a result of that. And I'm not aware of that showing up very clearly in a geological record. It it does you you see it it, it so where I what I read and and to be honest uh, that's something that seems to me most and and again coming from the pers- you know completely casual interest and and no no background in the in the, in the proper science so mm-hmm. but it it seems it seems to me from the from from what I what I read like it's quite uh, I I. It, I'm more willing to imagine, or maybe I, I can better imagine, um, dramatic climate change caused by the catastrophic event causing wiping out. Because I, I read about these big like cemeteries of, of mammoths, where, mm-hmm. where there's like a thousands and thousands of mammoths uh, uh, in, in one side dead. And... Uh, you know, that was not only kind of impossible for human hunters to do that and kill like thousands and thousands of mammals in one place, but the uh, the examination of the of the of the remains shows that some of them uh, has a um, signs of of massive trauma, like a like a smashed the the, the pelvic bones, and and clearly something fairly catastrophic happened to those big big animals causing such a you know yeah. bones breakages and so on and on top of that their tissue was um like a deep freeze so so it it had to be frozen like in a very quickly freeze to be in a in a state they, they it was found so yeah. that that points out to some catastrophic event that happened and and killed like thousands of mammals in one place in one moment. So when I when I was listening to that, it's like, hmm, so surely if assuming, obviously, assuming that those evidence and this and this is kind of that qualifier that I that I made earlier about the planet and so on, like assuming that that's really what it is, and assuming that really those pelvic bones were broken in one moment because of some trauma and so on. Yeah. If that is that, all of a sudden it makes it well, yeah, that has something had something catastrophic had to happen, and and that's coming also from the uh, like a geological features that pointing to rapid melting of the glaciers, like a catastrophic flooding that was happening on the on the northern hemisphere, yeah. um, and. Um, yeah, so so all that it's like yeah, okay, so there is this something here that that certainly might have an you know it it might play a role in the whole puzzle. Well, let's let's unpack a couple of those factors first. So certainly, yeah, it it, it certainly seems that there were uh, there were asteroid events. Um, there's certainly 
evidence from various cores and pollen deposits and such. Um, but you also said it yourself. There was massive flooding in North America at the time as the glaciers were melting, right? Yeah. So what's that going to do to the North Atlantic current, the current that keeps Ireland at a, a temperate uh, climate year-round, despite the fact it's on the same latitude as Alaska? Um, that rapid, massive, massive, massive melt of water, of, of glaciers over a kilometer thick, um, mm -hmm. quite frankly, it stops the heat distribution from the North Atlantic current to Europe. So what you yeah. get is a resurgence of cold and a quick buildup of the cold period again uh, before the overall effect of the astronomical variation of Earth's orbit starts to kick into effect. Mm -hmm. So this explains not only the sudden onset of resurgent cold in many parts of North uh, of the Northern Hemisphere, but it also explains why at the same time in the Younger Dryas, the southeast area of North, the United States experienced, or, or rather of what is now the United States, experienced increased warmth. Yes. Because the heat wasn't being distributed north. It was yes. staying in the Gulf of Mexico. Mm. Yeah, because so of again, this is so this is uh, this is part of the problem of, de of discussing non-linears in that the, this this snap of the cold can be explained by the overall tendency towards increased warmth. Right. So so what you're saying is that not that not necessarily had to be uh, asteroidal impact that caused this. It it no. it just just a glitch. There is a one other thing that I want to brought up, which was which I think is is called the energy paradox. That was apparently mm -hmm. not enough energy in the planet to melt the glaciers at that rate. That that they that they that they melted very quickly, and that's why uh, a lot of geological uh, people who work in the ge in the geology field are pointing out to like extraterrestrial source of energy that was able to melt the glaciers uh, that quickly. I'm, it's certainly it's a theory that I've heard um, with regards to that the transition from glacial to interglacial there are some people who, who based on previous research have said that within the existing model this idea of variations of uh, Earth's orbit in a periodic cycle over, through time uh, those transitions can be as quick as 20 years yes Wow. So a very, very rapid transition from glacial to interglacial period is something that's already accounted for in the theory. Again, it requires it requires a higher level of evidence to mm -hmm. say, um, yes, there was an extraterrestrial uh, increase in solar activity, solar flares and such. Right. Again, it's, it's difficult because you – you have to explain why things like the uh, Australian megafauna died out 40, 50,000 years ago. The, if there is a very, very large global event based on a solar, a, a change in, in solar activity, we'd expect more of a synchronous uh, global extinction event. That's not what we have. Mm -hmm. And again, we would expect if there was a global event, 
that the island populations would be the first ones to go. And yeah. again, that's not what we have. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, that's 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 in, in, incredibly interesting. This is incredibly interesting, and and I'm sure that you know over time the more evidence will be will be uh, coming for, for for either of of these theories, and or maybe that's a really question for you. Do you, do you think that we the 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 we 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 going into kind of like a, the needle is moving towards you know more certainty? For one or another of these events, and and do you think that there can be like a discovery uh, that will uh, make us to revise what we think are the most probable uh, cause of that extinction, or is the science in oh, your mind in your mind it's pretty much you know solid enough right now? I think that we're never going to have the absolute smoking gun in terms of suddenly discovering an arrowhead in every single fossil. If we had an arrowhead in every single fossil, oh, I, I would be, it would make things a lot easier. It's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so in terms of absolute cold clinical scientific rationality, we have to say that we're dealing with balances of probabilities here. Yeah. And we're dealing with the the explanations that require the fewest logical complications if you choose mm. if you uh, view climate as the uh as the nail in the coffin of the megafauna it is based on increasing amounts of evidence it is increasingly more difficult to use that as a cohesive theory to explain the megafaunal collapse right if you are looking at the the increased uh, resolution of archaeological data that we have of human activity, more and more and more, there's a synchronicity of humans arriving in areas and the megafauna collapsing there. Mm. Right, right. And no, look, just 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 for the record, that was uh, that was theory that that I thought was most probable, and uh, maybe you know, again, in my simplistic mind just by a kind of extrapolation of what is happening now and what we're doing now to the environment. Like, you know, there's no reason it, it didn't start earlier. Uh, but then when I was starting thinking, thinking about reading and, and listening about this uh, uh, catastrophic events, like, well, maybe it was catastrophic event and not necessarily human hunters who are responsible for, for, for all that. But like, you, yeah, yeah, like you said, this is the probabilities really. Yep, and um, the the question is, how does that influence what we do now? Yes, that's we can talk about rewilding, is, and we can now talk about the rewilding. So, so, yeah. so you think it's a? Uh, tell me, tell me what's your what's your uh, what's your views and what's your uh, thoughts about rewilding and and what scale of the rewilding is is uh, doable and and practical? Well, absolutely. Um, my thoughts on rewilding are that if we accept the fact that we're we're in a current, we are experiencing a global extinction event, we have to know what is normal for an ecosystem. So what is the baseline we use for a healthy, normal, fully functioning ecosystem? Mm -hmm. Now, to do that, we can either set an arbitrary date as, and this has been a slightly old-fashioned model of conservation to say, well, 
the it looked like this in 1970. So if we get it back to the way it looked in 1970, then it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to taking the longer lens and looking at quaternary history and saying, well, how did these things function for incredible periods of time? Mm-hmm. And uh, using that as our baseline for putting the elements in place and letting the ecosystem take care of itself. But is that possible? So so before 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 we go, is that possible? When you're saying seeing like we we're 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 in this um, extinction event do you mean like we have a like an extinction event that is happening right now like in a short time in and obviously we had a like a uh, yesterday we, there was a this um, biodiversity conference in ireland and then we talked about biodiversity yeah. loss and but this is like a, I, I feel like a very uh kind of over the last couple of decades but did I get that correctly? That in your view, we're talking about the extinction event that is reaching out twelve thousand years ago, and this is just the ex, you know this is the same extinction event that wiped out yes. megafauna. Is that what you this this is what you're referring to? Yes, okay. yes. Insofar as that, if you uh, again, if we're thinking in terms of killing every single bee with a hammer, or are we reducing the system which allows the bees to function and do what they normally do? Yeah. Are we killing every single uh, uh, megafaun- megafaunal individual, or are we, or have we killed enough that those functional populations and their interactions with the physical environment are diminished to the point of of not existing? Right. So yeah, it's what I see in terms of current ecosystems is as a continuation of a process that we haven't sufficiently uh, accepted or looked at. Mm-hmm. But is that is that possible? To, because I feel a little bit if we take that approach, um, it's you know you can make an argument that we um, treating ourselves as you know something unnatural right like almost as if we humans were dropped in here by aliens and now we wiped out everything and now we need to go back to the to the to the state where from before we actually uh develop anything more more uh, advanced than atilatl which i i have a, i have also problem with that because quite often and i have this i have these discussions very often where like oh this is natural it's like I feel like we, as humans, we are natural. We are part of that uh, ecosystem, and and sometimes I feel like we need to be careful to say, like, well, you know. T- so does it mean that we all, everything is bad? I mean, like, when we were like a primitive hunter gatherers, right? We were very much part of the ecosystem. We were very much part of the of that uh, assemblage, uh, and, yeah. and and and. S- so saying like, well, no, we need to come back, back in time and wipe ourselves out from the equation. <laughs> it's it's like I have a little problem with that. I I do too, but I don't I but I don't think we're I think we're talking about a completely different thing here. Mm-hmm. I think my view of us as a species, and I'm going to get a little philosophical Please rather than do. scientific now. Please <laughs> okay. do. So um, forgive me. Um, is that we are the ecosystem's way of observing itself. Mm-hmm. That uh, I think we have a profound role, and we are the only species that we know of 
which has the capacity to accept uh, or to look at itself through the lens of time. Yes. Um, does this mean that we need to basically shun every modern innovation and go live in trees? Um, well, I'm kind of big and heavy, and I don't really want to climb up a tree to go to sleep every night. Um, the to accept and this is a part of the of a huge uh, philosophical challenge in terms of looking at megafaunal extinctions is mm -hmm. to go okay well you know where do we fit in this picture where are we what are we um, mm -hmm. I do believe that we've gone from a very interest we as a species have had a very interesting arc where we interacted with our environment in such a way that um, we rapidly changed it in a way that we didn't necessarily understand. We're coming to a point where we as a species can conceptualize our under yeah. our, um, our relationship with nature in a very uh, broad way. Mm -hmm. And I think that we now have the ability to um, provide for ourselves and restore ecosystems. Um, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive phenomena. I think that it requires having to uh, very laboriously um, consider how our activities uh, impact on the environment. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually think that the idea of, of having a modern technological civilization with extensive rewilding is is not a mutually exclusive phenomenon mm. i think it's things that we can do together that will be actually provide a sense of hope for our future mm. yeah you see i would i would like i would love um these rewild these big rewilding projects to become a reality but I don't think th this is possible. And even going at the, at the much smaller scale, I'm going to go back a little bit to the smaller scale and then try to go go back to the larger scale. Like if you're, if you're you know, I had a, a couple of conversations on the podcast with, with several people and, and where we were talking about the rewild, rewilding and saying, oh, well, we're going to bring back wolf into to Ireland or maybe bear and so on. And I was like, yes, but like where? Like there's not enough space for okay. When, for, for... When, was, mm -hmm. when was the last wolf killed in Ireland? I don't remember. Not that long ago. Yeah. yeah. End of the 18th century. What was the population of Ireland? Please tell us. It, it was eight million. Mm -hmm. The the last wolf was shot in Ireland when there was more people on the island than there are now. Right. But but that, that's the reason it was shot. Uh, no, the reason it was shot is actually because of Oliver Cromwell, who instigated a huge policy of uh, of hunting wolves in Ireland. He paid an absolutely enormous sums of money for for hunters to come over from England to hunt wolves. Really, he established that as yeah, he established that as a as a policy, um, and then the last when you when you have a very very systematic policy of extermination, then down the line, the last few stragglers get shot. It's not uh, that was the tail end of a, of a very specific policy. Right, right. But even if you could, if if you imagine 
like if we if we had a let's say a reintroduced wolves in, in, mm-hmm. in, in Ireland, the human animal conflict would be absolutely horrendous. The, the the you know and I know there are solutions there is a there is a book yeah. called the way of Puma I think where where there is a there is a part of that book describes the very successful uh, program of bringing back the uh, the pumas or, or, or mountain lions in a, yeah. in South America and managing them to um, landowners acceptance. And sort yeah. of saying like, well, you because in 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 South America the gauchos, gauchos in fact were people who were exterminating mountain lions or pumas, because okay. they, they were killing sheep. But also what happened was uh, also native guanaco was killed. So mm-hmm. the program is like, well, let's reintroduce guanacos, and once we have guanacos, then we can put back the mountain lions or pumas, which yeah. are more likely hunt guanacos than your yeah. sheep and then kind of rebuilding that um that ecosystem that way so i'm well aware of of the successful uh stories but you know i just i just think that ireland is so small it's like you know we we talking yeah. about the different scale because in in south america you know like one ranch is like a size of half of the ireland Lancaster, yeah yeah <laughs> exactly yeah well uh, I'll, I'll, I'll preface what I'm saying by saying that I don't think that any rewilding project has any moral justification in being done under authoritarian means. I don't think it ever should be forced on people. Mm. Um, and I would rather, uh, I would rather, <sighs> yeah, I, I would really not feel happy with the presence of rewilding if it was done in a forcible way upon people without, um, without, uh, community outreach, without, hmm. uh, proper discussion and, uh, information sharing and feedback from landholders and other stakeholders. Yeah. So I, I'll say that I, I, I fully believe that it has to be done. And this is something I'm very passionate about is communicating the ideas as part of building up towards, but it has to be done in a way which is democratic. Yeah. I don't believe that any authoritarian rewilding project will stand the test of time. Yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll say that, and that that means it's going to be harder, and it means it's going to be slower. But I'm I'm willing to accept that. What argument would you put for for rewilding with wild boar in Ireland? Be, oh, because okay. uh, be, because that's that's like a very specific example, and I had a conversation about that, and obviously with African swine fever, uh, yeah. what's, what's happening now in Poland, for example, and with mass yeah. mass shooting of wild boar and so on and so on. Um, yeah. What what argument would you put uh, for rewilding with wild boar in Ireland? Certainly, well, the re- the rewilding with wild boar would be part of a successional program. Yeah, the boar are phenomenally interesting in an ecological capacity and in ireland you have uh, uh a lowest percentage of native forest in europe mm-hmm. a lot of the a lot of areas have become extremely acidified because of sitka spruce plantations yes. and because of just uh overgrazing so what happens when farmers take sheep off the land and don't graze it is they tend to become overgrown with pteridium 
uh, with bracken ferns. Mm -hmm. And boar are one of the only mammals that can eat those ferns, dig them up a little bit. And they tend through their rooting behavior, they tend to allow other trees like birch to plant. So they're part of the successional process through which native forests can regenerate. Mm. So ecologically, they play an absolutely phenomenal role in doing that. Um, they uh, provide plenty of aeration for ground soils. They're really, really wonderful creatures ecologically. I, I had a pretty close encounter with one in Poland a few months ago, and it was, uh, yeah, a real joy. Hmm. Um, so that would be their that would be their functional role in in the Irish ecosystem, which is creating uh, spaces where trees can take root in depleted uh, depleted upland areas. Mm-hmm. Yes. But like you said, that's a that's a part that's a that's a that's a part of the bigger whole. That's not like oh yes, let's exactly. let's 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 get a few wild boar and cut them loose in the established population and we're good to go. Oh yeah, I mean it's it it's it has to be done in a way which is democratic. And, yeah. uh, is there uh, is there hope, Richard, though for 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 that? Because I see tremendous obstacles. And yeah. and I think that those obstacles are because we don't. I don't really feel like like Ireland have any like a wild places uh, yeah. big enough that the animals can kind of stay there and you know not get into the direct conflict with with humans. Well, uh, there's there's two two things I'd say to that, and and the first is the fact that wild animals are showing that they're coming back remarkably well in Europe often in quite close proximity to very densely populated areas without significant evidence of human-animal conflict. Um, so there's pretty, there's pretty good evidence from the continent that we can have uh, some wild spaces adjacent to human populations. Mm-hmm. And the second is, again, that within the historical record, uh, wolves did coexist with Ireland excuse me, coexist in Ireland with an Irish population, which was several million uh, higher than it currently is. Hmm. And again, yeah. the only reason they were extinct, they they were exterminated was because of policies set out by Oliver Cromwell. Right. This is this is this is incredibly fascinating, uh, Richard, and um, we are we are almost out of time. Um, but like I, again, like when these things, it, it feels like we can continue to go on for for <laughs> hours, and and especially in the in the in the you know rewilding part, because you know I I really I'm kind of torn to be honest. I'm I'm torn yeah. because I would I would love absolutely love to have a like a like a properly wild places where you can when you can. Uh, encounter wild animals. There is nothing yes. like that right now. Maybe with the exception of fox and sika deer. Um, yeah. uh, so I would I would love to do that. Uh, on the other on the other hand, um, I think that one one of my guests in the previous podcast uh, put in a, it, it actually make a good point that we have more important issues to solve right now when it comes to the environment then introduce wolf and boar and 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 create this 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 another problem here 
Um, so I'm kind, I'm kind of, you know, like a like a romantic part of me and and the sportsman part of me absolutely would like to, you know, like even go to like a cut some animals loose and see if they're established population. And, and we know that this is kind of happening. Like there, we have yeah. a sightings of moonjack in in Ireland all of a sudden. So we know how yeah. how, how that goes. Yes. Um, but from 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 the other hand, um, uh, you know. I, I'm afraid that that would could uh, result in a backlash, and in yeah. the long run have a have a negative effect. Like, hey, look, you introduced the wolves and you introduced the boar, and oh, look what mess you made, and now we're gonna need to get rid of that. And you never, you know. So, so I'm, I'm kind well, of worried about. I would, I, I, I understand that. Um, I would say that the evidence from history is that when we went to get one to get rid of wolves, we're actually very good at doing that. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's part of the reason we're having this conversation in the first place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the reality is that Ireland is not likely to be the first part of this world in which, uh, in which this is going to happen. The likelihood I think is that Scotland is going to lead the way in that regard. Um, mm-hmm. The likelihood is that as European European agricultural funding changes in its model, there mm. is there are going to be fewer financial incentives to uh, farm the uplands of Ireland the way that are currently managed. And mm. uh, if you if you set your stole out and say that well, rewilding provides a way for rural communities to generate a rich um, cultural base which is likely to draw people into the area that might become on a very cold hard economic level a very attractive prospect you you Uh, you absolutely hit a nail in the head here richard uh because that's you know and and i i I think that you're not going to disagree that the that the fundamentally on the on the I, I at least I feel like fundamentally and as as a foundation of all these discussion is a is a land management policy how we managing land and how you know uh, how we work with landowners which are farmers which you know they need I I heard I even tweeted that last you know couple of days that it was like a nice phrase put like that uh, to incentivize farmers to be custodian of the of the environment of the natural yeah. like yes that's exactly it um that's a that's a way to go i think yeah it it, it is about um it, it is about that and i think it's also it's about um every culture in the planet has emerged from people's interaction with nature yes and i think that the uh i think that Ireland has a lot to gain by re-engaging with its natural history by, and, and engaging with rewilding as a process of reconnecting and rejuvenating our, our cultural energy. It was something, I, I, Alan Watson Featherston, who's the head of Trees for Life in the Cairngorms in Scotland, mm-hmm. he's been uh, talking and promoting rewilding for uh, decades. And he's done some wonderful work in restoring the um, the Caledonian pine woods in in uh, in the Cairngorms. And he said something a couple of years ago at a at a talk that absolutely just rang true for me. And it was he said when we look and we use our 
anthropology or sociology or any of these disciplines to look at indigenous populations in the world. So, see the First Nations in Canada, the uh, Native Americans in the United States, the Aboriginals in in Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And with these disciplines, we look at uh, uh, these populations who often have very high rates of alcoholism, suicide, really, really, really tough, difficult uh, personal, psychological, and social problems. And one of the first things that we say is, oh, yeah, well, they're disconnected from their land, <laughs> from their from their culture. And he, and he said, why don't we ever look at ourselves that way? <laughs> and it, it just it rang like a bell for me. It just yes. made so much sense, and uh, it's certainly that's something that's informing a lot of the work I'm doing at the moment. Mm-hmm. But it made me think: Well, what would Ireland's culture be like if we started to reconnect collectively with this, and of course, democratically uh, with that? How would that change how we, as a as a country, feel about ourselves? How would it change um, the rates of depression how would it change the rates of chronic pain how would it change um how would it change a lot of things that are not captured by by the discussion that we've had so far which is which is based on the ecological history and merits of rewilding in its context how much how much do we have to gain I and I tell you I I even wrote it not I think at least twice a blog post exactly making that point that the we are we really are disconnected from the nature yeah. in such a like like even like it's it's hard to imagine how much we are disconnected <laughs> and then and then when we going into the nature the changes in our in our mind in our body is just is it's like phenomenal like we slow yeah. down it's, it's it's like it's like we we are and uh, absolutely, that's that would that would be that would have a huge health benefits. Um, yeah. And and look, Richard, I I I must admit you you didn't change my mind hugely on the, <laughs> on, the on the extinction of megafauna, but you did change my mind, and and kind of added very um, important piece to uh, my my approach and my thinking about rewilding. Um, oh, wow. uh, and yes, yes, and and I and I think you know my 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 thoughts are on on an engagement in 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 a in a, in a, in a rewilding, uh, like you said, in a in a democratic way to to use your your phrase, but but also on that on that phrase, like yeah, even economic va- economic value can be found there. Um, and it could make sense, but it needs to it needs to go hand in hand with the change of the of the land management policy, or maybe in the in the agricultural policies and and uh, incentive in incentivizing local communities to go that direction rather than go direction buy as many farms as you can and then get the uh, you know EU. Uh, finance for the land yeah, that yeah. you have, and you're not doing anything with it, but you have to, you know, make sure you don't have trees on it because otherwise you're not going exactly. to get money. And then, and then it all goes 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 uh, in a, in a completely wrong way. Um, so that's great. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I, I'll, I I think that's a that's a one nil draw then. 
That's well. No, I, I think listen. That's a, that's that's a that's a that's a fantastic conversation. And Richard, yeah. uh, do you have any 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 concluding thoughts for for our listeners, or maybe there is something that that you wish we spoke about and we never never touch on that? So, did you do you have any 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 concluders? Yeah, and and perhaps this is a conversation we can take up in a few months' time and and uh, do a second chapter, as it were. Absolutely. Absolutely, I would. I would be absolutely thrilled, and I would love to do that because it it really feels like there is a there is a lot of a uh, a lot of a uh, uh, conversation to happen, and especially yeah. on the on the front of uh, of the benefits of rewilding and kind of going back yeah. to nature, and 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 Honest. most importantly, how to do that because you see, um, I I see the podcast as the as a platform for uh you know expressing various points of views right and yeah. it's not like it's 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 not necessarily that all the points of views that are presented i have to agree with them it's it's even you know it's it's not about that and it's about yeah. diverse points of view and people listening and you know uh, i'm sure that the same thing happens to to listeners that happened to me as i as i speak with various people my kind of view of the world is 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 broadened and enriched and there's more stuff going it's like oh i never thought about that and um so i i just just hope that somebody is listening listening to that podcast and, and say like oh this is what's what's happening so that's that's it's just fantastic yeah well look tommy i've really enjoyed talking with you it's it's uh really been great to speak with someone who's who's so engaged with nature and um whatever whatever points we might disagree on uh maybe our opinions will change over time but i certainly look forward to talking to you again i'd certainly love to talk to you about uh about rewilding in the context of human health and i think we'd, we'd probably have more to agree on in that discussion but no, yes. nonetheless we could come up with some interesting stuff absolutely richard we're gonna we're gonna do it again and uh, for today, thank you very much for taking time of your day and, and being here with us and, and having that uh, fantastic conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. Tommy, take care, man. You just listened to an archived episode of the Tommy's Outdoors Conservation and Science Podcast. I invite you to take a moment and listen to one of the most recent episodes. I'm sure you'll enjoy it.